Okay, so um, you'll see on the inside of your sheets that um, I've put the passage in among some points to help us guide our way through. Um, so it's literally the exact text. Um, I've left out four verses at the beginning of Mark 2, just as an indication that we're not going to go over what Sim went over really helpfully last week. If you want more detail on the first 17 verses of Mark chapter 2, um, then you can already get Sim's talk on YouTube. Um, and I found that hugely helpful, and I'm sure you will too if you haven't heard it yet. Um, but what we're, what we're going to do is working our way through the whole of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we're going to look at this theme of what is your religious framework? What's your religious framework? And does Jesus fit in neatly? And um, hopefully this will help you if you're a believer, which I know most of you are. Um, uh, and um, hopefully it will also help you if you're talking to others about how they think things through and how they process who Jesus is. Because here we encounter some people who are trying to work out who Jesus is, who he's claiming to be, and then they come to a conclusion that he's not who he claims to be and they want to get rid of him. But the process that they go through, although we're very different, we're over, well, no, we're about 2,000 years after them. Um, although we're culturally very different, actually the, the thought process they go through is helpful for us believers or not. And it's helpful for us to challenge ourselves. We see some genuine believers, some disciples of, of, of John the Baptist here coming and being confused about the way Jesus is behaving and why he doesn't fit into their religious framework. Um, but friends of ours who are atheists, for example, might say, well, I don't even have a religious framework at all. And there we want to say, now there you are completely self-deluded. I, I think you could say to an atheist friend, they have a religious framework. Um, Probably, I think the, the most helpful person to talk about that in this room is probably Kat. You grew up with a very strong religious framework, didn't you? In an atheist home, you studied passages of Dawkins and things like that. <laughs> um, but um, even if people aren't that bothered about their views, they're kind of completely agnostic. Um, everyone's got a religious framework because actually we've got, we've got to live for something. We've got to have a reason to get up in the morning. Um, and that is a religious framework. The fact that we have patterns in life um, that's religious to an extent. We, we follow a kind of liturgical pattern through our day, get up at a certain time when the alarm goes off, have a certain type of breakfast, probably the same for most of us every day, and, and so on and so on. And we follow religious patterns in life. And so what is your religious framework? And does Jesus fit in neatly? Because my fear is if he does fit in neatly, and he often does fit in neatly into my religious framework, then there's something wrong for us, even if we are genuinely following Jesus and saying wholeheartedly that he's the centre of it all. Well, let's dive in to Mark chapter 2. Um, in, the, in Mark chapter 1, uh, Jesus has been making claim that he is the bringer of good news, the ultimate good news, that the kingdom of God is near in him because the king is present. He's been showing us what the kingdom of God might look like as he, the king, goes through healing and casting out evil and you see this sort of picture of the future where the king is in charge and there's no sickness and no death and no mourning and no sadness and no evil. And, and Jesus is showing that's what it's going to be like if the king is in charge. And word is spreading and people are coming and thinking, are these claims about him really that big? Because I've got some views of my own. Well, here we pick up the story where 
some people who are convinced that Jesus is who he says he is bring their friend, a paralyzed man, lower him down in front of him, in front of a big crowd, in a crowded place, and they clearly want him to heal their paralyzed friend. And you can imagine the paralyzed man looking up at Jesus and just thinking, please heal me, please heal me. Verse 5, there on your sheets, Mark chapter 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I've called this section, Jesus says the unsayable. Jesus says the unsayable and insists he can solve our biggest problem. It's not hard to imagine what everyone in the room, including the paralyzed man in front of Jesus, thought his biggest problem was. It was his paralysis, the fact that he couldn't walk. And in those days, with no welfare state and no wheelchairs and no support, that would have meant he was just completely at the mercy of others. Um, His life would have been utterly ruined by his paralysis. And Jesus, though, looks at him and sees that his biggest problem is his sin. And that's not saying that this man was particularly more sinful than any others. He's just saying, like, guys, I know you all think his biggest problem is that he's paralysed. But I'm saying his biggest problem is his sin. Now, there are some people there, some religious people, teachers of the law, verse 6, who are sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So their problem isn't so much that Jesus identifies he's a sinner. They know everyone's a sinner. But their problem is that Jesus says the unsayable. He says what only God can say. As Sim pointed out last week, only only the person who's been offended can forgive. Um, I think Sim gave the example of someone stealing something from him. And and then someone else saying, oh, it doesn't matter, I forgive you. It just doesn't work. If if the sin is against God, if, if sin is pushing God out of the picture, then only God can forgive sins. And so they say, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Now, in our language, blasphemy has come to mean um, only an offence against God. But actually, the the word is is basically just saying something incredibly offensive, saying the unsayable. And Jesus says the unsayable and claims, or what does he say, verse 8? Jesus immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like that. So so Jesus is saying, no, your biggest problem is your sin. And... Your sin separates you from God, like leprosy. And the little passage just before this was of a leper coming to Jesus to be healed from his leprosy that cut him off from from God's people and God himself. Sin separates you from God. Your biggest problem is your sin. And Jesus can do something about it because, he says, he is the son of man. And this is a phrase he's going to use more and more now in in this passage. This is a quote from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision of a son of man. And son of man just means human being. So Daniel has a vision of a human being, but who's coming towards God, the Ancient of Days, 
and then is given all authority and power over the whole of creation and everyone worships him. And Daniel is really confused and, and actually really upset by this idea that somehow there would be a human being given divine power. I mean, just imagine how scary it would be if Xi Jinping suddenly had divine power. So she could just control everyone in the world. I mean, he's doing a pretty good job of it in China, but just imagine if he could see into your minds. And Daniel is terrified. The idea that a human... Daniel knows that power corrupts. He's seen some pretty corrupt leaders. And he sees this vision of a human being coming and being given all divine power and authority. And he is terrified. But God tells him this is a good thing. This is a good thing. And then Jesus comes along, this funny little poor man, Jesus. He's done a few miracles, and he seems really lovely, um, but he's also not very nice to religious people. And he comes in, and he says, I'm the son of man, and I have authority to forgive sin. This, this great image that Daniel saw is actually going to be a good thing, a human being on the throne with all authority. And Jesus claims he has that, to forgive sins. He has the authority of God himself. Now, Jesus says the unsayable. He says he can, he insists he can solve our biggest problem. And if you recognise that your sin is your biggest problem, then the next bit is wonderful news. But if not, then it's highly offensive. And we're going to see some people for whom this is highly offensive. So Jesus says the unsayable, but now he accepts the unacceptable by transforming them. Verse 13 they're on your sheets. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And, and we're thinking this is nice, you know, Jesus accepts this tax collector, and we might know already, um, if you listened to Sim's talk last week, that you know, tax collectors were seen as the lowest of the low at the time. But, but Sim pointed out that this isn't just the lowest of the low, this is, this is really evil kind of people. So Jesus is actually having a party with Nazis and sex offenders. That's what he's having a party with. I mean, how, how does that make you feel? Jesus is having a party with people who would wear swastikas on their arm, and people who fiddled with children. That's the kind of people Jesus is hanging out with in the eyes of the society around them. And suddenly we're like, <laughs> no, no, I, like there's, yeah, drug dealers, you know, transform, you know, saving prostitutes off the street, yeah, that's great, you know, helping the homeless, but the Nazis and the, no, no, not the Nazis and the sex offenders. And then we understand, if Nazis and sex offenders, people wearing swastikas, people who've, who are on the sex offenders list. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with Nazis and sex offenders? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying he can accept even the most unacceptable in our society 
by transforming them. He, he calls Levi away from his tax collector's booth. He calls these sex offenders of the day, these, these, these known sexual sinners probably, he calls them away from that dark way of life into his light and then he, he eats with them, a sign of deep fellowship and intimacy. And he says he's not come for those who think they don't need that kind of rescue. I suppose we could admit that, yeah, okay, for a Nazi to be rescued, to, to be acceptable, for, for a sex offender to be acceptable, there would be need to be a complete and utter heart transformation. But I'm not that bad. And Jesus says, well, then you don't need me. If you don't recognise you're that bad. He, he says the unsayable, then he accepts the unacceptable. And the question is, will we recognise that we are unacceptable, actually? That, that in the eyes of a holy and perfect and good God, in, in a perfect world, you and I would mess it up. We would screw it up. We'd need heart transformation. Often the question our friends ask if they discover and they want to talk about Jesus or anything vaguely religious is, you know, why, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why doesn't God do something about it? Well, because the source of suffering in the world is the source of our hearts that, that are turned away from God, the source of life. If you unplug the life support machine, the body's going to start to die and rot. And that's what our world is like. And if we don't identify with those who have pushed God out of the picture, then, well, Jesus says, well, we think we're healthy, we, we, we don't need him. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So suddenly what is a reasonable question, in, a, in, in the first bit, those, those religious leaders, those people with their own religious framework, were just asking the question of, how, how can you claim to forgive sins, Jesus? That's, that's not okay. Only God can do that. And you're like, that's a reasonable objection. And then they're like, well, we're not like those other people. And, and actually, if we get into their mindset, it's reasonable as well. I, I, I don't consider myself like a Nazi or a sex offender. And, and so we can understand why they would have an objection to that. And why they start to think Jesus is wrong and they're right and that they can challenge him. But then... Jesus has a more religious encounter with them in these next sections. And I've called this next bit, Jesus insists true life revolves around him. True life revolves around him to bring deep joy and to reframe your life. Well, let, let's see where the, the, the clash happens. Verse 18, now John's disciples, so, so John the Baptist, great guy pointing to Jesus, people following John were on the right track. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, um, I haven't mentioned this, but the, the Pharisees were the good guys of the day. It, it's so easy, having read the Gospels, or if you're familiar with uh, kind of the way that uh, biblical history has kind of permeated our world, you know that Pharisee normally means sort of boo, hiss, bad guy. But actually, in those days, the Pharisees were the really good guys. They were the best guys. They were the, the, the great examples, the, the moral leaders. Um, I don't know what would be the equivalent today someone who was both a vegan and really nice to those who chose not to be vegans, but was just sort of gradually winning them over and saying that you could be like this. And, you know, and then they set up some rules and stuff, but that was all to help people. Um, they were good moral leaders. 
So you've got these good guys, John's disciples, and the good guys, Pharisees, were fasting. Now, um, uh, fasting is just going without food in order to focus more on prayer or um, to mourn sin or to show God that you're longing for him to restore the kingdom. Um, in the Bible, there's actually only one place where people are required to fast in the Old Testament law, and that's on the Day of Atonement, when the people are to go without food in order to prepare their hearts to recognise that they're mourning their sin and they're going to receive forgiveness from God through the atoning sacrifice. And, um, and yet, over the years, and especially after the exile, um, that's when God's people were kicked out of the land by the Babylonians and everything had gone horribly wrong, God's people started fasting more and more in order to say we long to be back in the land and we long for the enemy occupiers, which now are the Romans, to be kicked out and God's kingdom restored. So, so they're yearning for something really good by fasting and praying into that. So this is a really good thing to do. And some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So this is a perfectly reasonable question from perfectly reasonable people. And Jesus answered, Verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Jesus is saying, he's comparing himself to the life and soul of the party, of, of a wedding party. And um, in our day, um, the sort of most important, the most sort of centre of attention at a wedding is normally the bride. In those days, it was normally the groom. And it would be the groom's family who laid on the party and the groom would put considerable expense in himself. And so the centre of the party would be the groom, the bridegroom. And Jesus is saying, it would be as ridiculous for my disciples, my followers, to, to fast around me as it would be for you to go to a wedding feast and in those days, they, those wedding feasts would last up to a week, um, to go to a wedding feast and say, um, I'm fasting. I'm not going to have anything. Um, in fact, uh, I'm really, really longing for a great day in the future. And so I'm not going to eat, because I'm hoping there might be some reason to celebrate at some point in the future. <laughs> it would just be completely inappropriate, wouldn't it? It would be utterly offensive to the, to, to the bride and groom. And Jesus is saying that he is the centre of the party. But actually, by calling himself the bridegroom, he's saying much more than that, because God's people were described as the bride. And when Jesus says he's the bridegroom, he's saying he is God, married to his people. So he's saying, God the Lord is here. He is the very meaning of life, the centre of joy and celebration, the divine Messiah, God himself, is here. And so it makes no sense for his people to fast anymore, longing for him to come, because he's here. Because he's here. So, so don't try and fit him into your framework, disciples of John and, and Pharisees. You, you, you're good people, yearning for something good, but, but just because you fast twice a week on a Monday and Thursday doesn't, doesn't mean that suddenly you need to squeeze Jesus into that. And so Jesus tells them a little kind of parable, verse 21 or a couple together. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Um, I bought this shirt uh, a size too big for me and um, put it in the wash and it shrunk and I was quite relieved that it did, but I sort of anticipated that it would shrink. Now if I got a piece of the cloth from before and just sewed it on, 
it wouldn't quite work. Now, in those days, that was more intricate. I, I don't know much about sewing and stuff, but you, you get the idea. You can't, you can't mix a new patch with an old. And then even clearer, verse 22, and no one pours a new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So in those days, they used animal skins to, to store wine, um, especially if they were taking it around. They wouldn't have glass bottles. Um, they would have had animal skins, perhaps a, a kind of bladder that had been very carefully cleaned out. And um, the wine, old wine would go in, uh, the new wine would go in, it would ferment, a bit in the wineskin, it would mature in the wineskin, the, the wineskin would become sort of harder and more solid and stable, um, but also a little bit cracked. And it was good for holding old wine. But if you then finished that old wine and then poured in some new wine and it began to ferment again, then what would happen to that old wineskin? Instead of being flexible and fresh, ready to expand with the new wine, it would crack and burst and everything would be ruined. And so Jesus is saying, you've got this framework, this old wineskin, and, and you're trying to just fit me into the framework. But you don't get it. You need to realise that I'm the big deal here, Jesus says, and you need a whole new framework, and I'm going to tell you what that framework is. Let me tell you what joy is. So stop mourning when I'm here. It's time to celebrate. I'm going to bring you deep joy and meaning and purpose. And then I'm going to reframe your life so that one day, just look back to verse 20, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. So Jesus is going to, he's referring to his death, his resurrection and then his ascension. And having reframed their framework, then they will fast, but in a different way. In a different way. And so one of the questions people ask as, as we come to this passage is, well, should should we fast or not? Because Jesus was with the disciples there and so they didn't need to fast. They could celebrate because they're there in the party with God himself, the Messiah King. They're among them. But should we fast? Well, then the question is, is Jesus with us? Is Jesus with us? What do you think? Yes? And, and no? And yes and no? Yes and no. Yes and no, isn't it? That, well, I got the right answer because some people were shaking their heads, some people were nodding. Yes and no. Jesus is with us, but he's risen, reigning, ruling, sent forth his spirit, and he's going to come back. And then there's going to be the new creation, and then there will be permanent feasting. But for now, we have something way more than what the Pharisees had. And Jesus is with us by his spirit. And so we can celebrate, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ, and we can rejoice and Life is better and more meaningful and purposeful with Jesus, but he's not with us. And we long for him to return and to restore and to bring more people to himself. And so it's yes and no, no and yes. And so no, we shouldn't fast because we have a wonderful relationship with Jesus. We shouldn't do that kind of fasting that they were doing, mourning the exile and longing that the king might come one day because he has come and we have a relationship with him. But yes, we should fast because we aren't with him fully yet. And so we should let him frame what he's promised is going to happen. And then by his spirit, we ask him to lead us into how should we fast? What should I be longing into? What should I be pressing into? Lord Jesus, show me. And so Jesus' presence is now and not yet. Um, 
It's a great watch phrase for the whole of New Testament living, is now and not yet. And um, uh, some of you know that I've, uh, a few of us have been reading um, John Piper's book on fasting called A Hunger for God. And um, as we as elders were praying into this, this year, 2021, and thinking what should be our vision for 2021, we decided to come up with that phrase, hunger for God. We want to hunger for God more in 2021. And fasting is a great way to do that, not in the way that the Pharisees did, because Jesus has already come, but in a way for longing for him to, to save more people and to bring in more of the fullness of his kingdom. And John Piper, in his book, Hunger for God, um, says this. He says, my prayer for the Christian church is that God might awaken in us a new hunger for himself, a new fasting, not because we haven't tasted the new wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it and long with a deep and joyful aching of soul to know more of his presence and power in our midst. You see that? It's, it's not because we have nothing of Christ. No, we do. We have the wonderful gospel. We, we can know him intimately in, in prayer and we can experience him by the Spirit. And when we gather together and we sing of his, his wonderful grace, it's like a foretaste of the new, new creation. And that little taste, we say, we want it more. We want more. And, and so we hunger for him as the psalmist did. Like in, in Psalm 63, which we, um, we looked at recently over a few weeks in our psalms. You God are my God, earnestly I seek for you. I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. Sometimes we, we go without food or tech or TV or, or something that distracts us so that we can concentrate our minds and our hearts on longing and hungering for God, fasting for him. And we see that in the early church and we've seen it a bit in the book of Acts as we've been working through there. It's a way of keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. It's a way of putting Jesus back at the centre of it all. So Jesus insists true life revolves around him. That's why he gets to frame what we do and whether we fast or not. But next, Jesus breaks human laws as he claims he's in charge. There, top right of your sheets. Jesus breaks human laws as he claims he's in charge. So verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and his disciples walked along and they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now that the Pharisees, who were very serious about doing the right thing and getting it right and, and making sure society worked right, in order to try and fulfill what they believed was the law of God, they added a whole load of extra rules to the simple fourth commandment which is observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, rest on that day. Um, they took that principle of day of rest and they started to think, well, what exactly is rest? And they defined how many steps. You couldn't, you couldn't go more than 2,000 steps in a day. And so they would always stop at 1,999 steps. Um, they had other, other rules like you shouldn't take a bath on the Sabbath in case water spilled out and you ended up inadvertently washing the floor and that would be work. And you couldn't carry anything that was heavier than a dried fig. And, and so, so women who wore jewellery would weigh their jewellery <laughs> to make sure it was no heavier than a dried fig, and then they'd make sure they didn't carry anything else like that. And, and all these kind of rules that the Pharisees had invented to make sure you didn't step out of line. And, and it seems that what Jesus' disciples are doing here, doing the equivalent of us sort of picking blackberries or something, is, is they are um, they're harvesting 
and they are threshing because they're, they're taking little grains and, and they're, um, uh, and they're um, taking the, the skins off. And so that would be defined as work. So it was totally fo fine for them to, to glean. That was totally allowed. You're allowed to take little bits from farmers' fields as long as you didn't go along with your combine harvester, as it were. Um, but uh, the, the thing that they were doing was, was working on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, verse 25, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, um, he was the son of Ahimelech who was um, at the overall high priest at that time. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, you might think that's a bit of a weird and boring answer, but actually it's challenging them on two massive fronts. Well, firstly, he says that incredibly offensive thing, have you never read? I mean, these guys were experts in the law. They had read their Torah again and again and again and again and again. They'd read their, their Tanakh, their Torah, their, their equivalent of our Old Testament. And so it would be like saying to a Shakespeare scholar, um, have you never read this thing called um, Macbeth? It would be as offensive as that. But he's challenging them because he's saying, well, you might have read it, but you haven't taken it in. You know, David, he goes, he's, in hu he's hungry and he's in need. Um, he's got a group of men. He's fighting God's cause, uh, protecting the kingdom. And um, he and his men are hungry and they go into the temple and they eat the consecrated bread, which is only lawful for the priests to eat. So they break the law. But why do they break the law? In order to do something good, which is to keep themselves alive, to sustain them. And, and um, Ahimelech, uh, father of Abiathar, the high priest, gives them uh, the food that they need. Um, and, um, uh, and they're sustained. And so Jesus is saying, the Bible you say you teach makes your stupid rules look silly. But more seriously, Jesus is saying, you've misunderstood who I am. Because Jesus is comparing himself to David, who... What was David's kingly title? It was Messiah. David's title was the Messiah. And Jesus is comparing himself to David and saying, just as David as Messiah had authority to go into the temple and ask the high priest for what was technically unlawful, but what was fine because they were hungry, Jesus is saying, I'm greater than David. I am the son of man. I am the lawgiver. And he explicitly says that in verse 27. Do you see? Verse 27, he says to them, the Sabbath was made to, for man, uh, not man for the Sabbath, verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So J Jesus says, verse 27, the Sabbath, the, this day of rest is a good gift, and yet you've turned it into a restriction, and you haven't understood who I am. I am the Son of Man, the human being with all authority. I am the great Messiah King. I'm the greater David, and I am Lord, and that's a title only used for God, I am Lord of the Sabbath. No one in human history has ever claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath except Yahweh, the God who established the Sabbath. The reason we have seven days in a week is because it's established in, in the Torah. And that was established by God himself. And Jesus is saying, verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's saying, you can't even rest without me. He says, I'm the one who gets to define your work and your rest. So don't you go challenging me. If I need to correct my followers, I will correct my followers. 
And Jesus is saying to them, look, your human religion restricts freedom. But I bring in true and principled freedom. Freedom that is one of relationship. You see, all the way through, Jesus is showing, I'm with them. I'm the bridegroom with them. And so therefore, we're celebrating together. And they do what I encourage them to do. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And so therefore, we rest together. And they do what I encourage them to do. You see, for Jesus, it's all about relationship and working things out, not in conformity to strict rules and guidelines. This is how we do things here. But Jesus is the Lord. What is he saying? How can we follow him? And through every culture and every society, we need to do that. And we need to do that individually. Every second of every day is depend on him, Lord of the Sabbath. He, he wants us to rest. If, you, if you're not resting one day in seven, there's something very wrong because God has made you physiologically to do that. And so if you work every single of the seven days of the week, there's something wrong there. And you need to change that. Um, but actually, even the priests of the day would work on the Sabbath because they had responsibilities in the temple. So the law is flexible, but it's in relationship with the God who made the law and the made the seven days and made rest. Well, lastly, Jesus smashes your religious frame, framework. And the challenge to us is, both in a big way, like the Pharisees, or in individual little ways, will we cancel him? Will we block him out? Will we shut him down? Or will we listen to him? Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he will heal him on the Sabbath, because it was unlawful to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. He thought, if you're just watching me, I'm going to make a proper scene here. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Because the answer to that question is pretty obvious, isn't it? To do good and to save. But they would, they would say, but <clears throat> the GP surgery is closed today. He can come back tomorrow. You can heal him tomorrow. Today's the day of rest. Don't, don't heal him today. Jesus is saying to them, no, it's not about what you do on the Sabbath. It's about why you do it and where your heart is. And is your, is your aim to rest well, to do good, to save life? Because if that's your primary aim and you, you come across an opportunity to help and serve on the Sabbath, then you will do it. Now, this is actually a <clears throat> major, major difference between Islam and Christianity. I remember my first meeting with the um, Imam of Stretton Mosque. We met for five years, we, we're, we're going to start meeting again now that um, uh, COVID restrictions have relaxed. But um, I remember him, him sort of mocking me. He said, um, he said you Christians, you, you don't even know uh, what Jesus looked like, uh, the length of his beard, uh, what clothes he wore, um, how he put on his shoes, uh, what foods he ate and didn't eat. You don't even know any of that. So you say you follow Jesus, but you don't really, do you? Because we know all those things about Muhammad and we do them exactly. And you know, they take the right shoe off at the time. And I always forget which shoe I'm supposed to take off first when I go to the mosque and, and so on. Because they're following exactly what Muhammad did. But Jesus freed us from knowing those details about him because he wants us to be in relationship with him and to have our own freedom. It's not about what you do. In Islam, it's all about what you do. And in most human religion, it's about what you do. But Jesus says, no, it's about why you do it. And whether you listen to me, I'm the centre of life, life revolves around me. And so then Jesus deliberately, he could heal the guy the next day, but deliberately, verse 5, he looked around them in anger 
and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then Mark makes explicit what Luke and Matthew make implicit. (laughs) From this moment, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. There's two people who are natural enemies, religious and and irreligious. The Herodians were pretty irreligious. Both realise that Jesus is smashing their religious framework and they want to get rid of him. And for them it was kill. But the claims that Jesus makes, that he is the great Messiah King, the divine Son of Man, the, the bridegroom of his people, the Lord of the Sabbath, that means if you don't put Jesus at the centre of your life, then you're killing him. Then you're killing him. And you're siding with those who want the God killers. And, and God will give you what you want. If you want God out of your life, he will give you what you want. Life without him and anything good for all eternity. And that's what the Pharisees chose, these religious people, the best people. They chose that. And the the question is, in our lives and in our circumstances, both as the big decision, do I follow Jesus or not, or every day, am I keeping in step with the Lord Jesus and and praying to him, uh, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit? Am I being more like that human religion that that excludes certain types of people, that, that removes joy because it's all about practice and what you do and, and, and mourning and being serious and, and restricts freedom, forgetting that, that Jesus does the opposite of all those things. Jesus welcomes the outcast. He brings joy. He brings freedom. And, and are we willing to just drop into conversation like he did, where, where Jesus says the unsayable? And we can, we can show people how, how Jesus says that our, our biggest problem is our sin, and he can solve that. And Jesus accepts the unacceptable, so much so that we could be those who, who perhaps deliberately, like some people I know, go into sex offenders' wards in, in the prisons, share the good news of the Lord Jesus with them. Jesus accepts the unacceptable and, and sees transformation. And I've met a couple, through a prison ministry that I'm involved in as a trustee, I've met a couple of sex offenders who say, I'm so grateful to God that I went to prison and there I met Jesus and now I'm freed from, 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 from the condemnation of my sin. And yes, they put safeguards around themselves and they'll never again be able to do kids' work or whatever in this life. But, but they're transformed and they're willing to do that because Jesus has freed them and forgiven them. And, th- and then Jesus insists that true life revolves around him and brings deep joy and reframes your life. Do you let him reframe your life every day? And do you realise Jesus breaks human laws? And so sometimes it's okay to break a law if it's just a technicality. You might make rules in your life, in your, in your religious life. You know, I'm going to do this every day. But actually, is it, do you end up sort of getting into a formula? This is the way we've always done this at church. This is the way other churches always do this. Why don't we just always do it like this? Jesus is willing to break those conventions which people see as laws because he claims he's in charge. And are we looking to him or are we looking to convention around us? Do we, do we fear him or do we fear what everyone else in church will think of us? And then Jesus so smashes our religious framework 
that our reaction could be to cancel him and to push him aside and sideline him in areas that he's pinpointing in our lives. Well, let's not do that because we'll miss out on the joy and freedom and life-sustaining power that he gives us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you smashed through the conventions of the day, but in such a beautiful and wonderful way, in, in generosity, in kindness, in healing, in, in joy. You got cross with people who wanted to shut down the party. You um, got angry with those who wanted to stop healing happening. Lord, we pray that we would recognise where our conventions have become almost pharisaical and that we would listen to you first and foremost and listen to one another as we point each other to your word and, and we ask your Holy Spirit to direct us as to how should we be. Lord, free us from mere convention. We, we praise you for good church tradition, but free us from mere convention and enable us to be those who are willing to, to sacrifice our reputation for the sake of going out and sharing the wonderful news of the Lord Jesus. In his name. Amen.